Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Irrational Security Edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, feeling totally unhinged and irrational this week, you guys. I'm completely off my rocker, I'm Shane. so off my rocker. I am just, um, you know, I'm off over the bend, unhinged, reporting my Muslim neighbors to the authorities. And still so much more sane than a lot of our politicians. Definitely. In fact, I'm going to run for president now on that the space soon to be vacated, perhaps, by the Republican <laughs> the frontrunner. Shane I'm just this shade of less crazy than Donald Trump. That's your new slogan. Less Less crazy than Donald Trump. (laughs) It's a low bar, people. It's a very low bar, and I'm going to shimmy right under it. Uh, Of course, we're going to get to Senior Trump later in the podcast. Boy, been quite quite a week, quite a week. Um, I'm joined, of course, as always, by my friends Tamara Kaufman. But it's hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And you're feeling you're probably feeling a little more rational Um, than we let on. Yeah, well, I'll give you my own definition of insanity a little later. In the oh, broadcast. I look forward to that. Oh, I look forward to that. We're previewing all of our word plays here uh, in the intro. And, of course, our friend Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Cheers, Cheers. to you. I've uh, got a glass of scotch. So the scotch I'm, is I'm back fine. on the podcast. We're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best podcast ever. And we're joined again by our friend Susan Hennessy. Hello, Susan. Managing Editor of Lawfare. Nice to be here. You're not drinking scotch. Regular guest, not drinking scotch. Wise woman. Are you feeling irrational? I'm holding it together. You are? For now. Even in this crazy world. She hasn't heard our wordplay yet. Oh, okay. Well. We'll see, the the game today is can we make Susan blink? And so by the end of the podcast, if she is not holding it together, then we win. Susan, you're one of the more rational, security-minded people I know. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to see. High compliment. We're going to see if we can shake you by the end. All right, let's do it. (laughs) All right, this week on the podcast, Barack Obama tries to reassure the nation that ISIS is not winning. Donald Trump has a different plan to keep America safe, and John Kerry is so over the Middle East peace process. Uh, Plus, as always, object lessons. Um, I think I'll start with uh, wordplay, which is going to be Barack Obama's Oval Office address on Sunday, the third. Oval Office address that he's given in his presidency, um, watched by, by the way, 46 million people, in case you were taking count. That's what you get when you find the one very narrow slot between Sunday afternoon football and Sunday night football. That's right. And he also was smart of him to go on before Homeland. Yeah, Because it sure. is good this season, and I would totally have TiVo'd the speech and not Homeland. I'm Talk about saying. unhinged. Yeah. I mean, come on. Right. Come on. Whoa, this, is whoa, the, spoilers. this is the world we live in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he gave this address in the Oval Office, and he clearly was motivated by the shootings in San Bernardino, uh, which killed 14 people, and we're still learning more about that, but that appear to be ISIS-inspired, perhaps, to, as the president put it. You know, I don't think he used the word ISIS-inspired, but saying that we don't have any clear connections, per se, to show that this was directed by ISIS, but these appear to be people who were 
we're using this vague term again, radicalized, inspired to do something by ISIS or some kind of fealty uh, to Baghdadi, which uh, one of the shooters expressed on a Facebook post during the shooting. Um, I'm just going to say about this speech that I found it to be incredibly underwhelming um, and nothing new. Um, there was nothing that I felt like he said in the speech, per se, that was particularly novel or shed light on what had happened. I've heard these kinds of, and it was approaching bromides and some kind of, that said, what was fascinating to me was the decision to give it and to do it from the Oval Office only his third time to do it on Sunday night. Clearly, if 46 million people tuned in, they were looking to the president for some level of reassurance. And while I was sort of watching it, perhaps with the cold eyes of a journalist being, where's the news and coming away and feeling like there wasn't any, it seems that he probably was tapping into some sense correct sense that the American public was looking for some reassurance after what now is being described as the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil since 9-11 in terms of the body count. Right. So it wasn't a policy speech, and it wasn't meant to be a policy speech, and it was only, what, 14 minutes Very long? Very short, yeah. Very brief, because you got to get it in before Sunday Night Football. Uh, you don't want to, you know, interrupt too much of the pregame, but... But it was a bully pulpit speech, as you say. People are anxious, almost irrationally so. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so if the idea is to use the presidency's bully pulpit to reassure the American people, if that was the purpose, how did he do? So you don't judge it by how good was the policy he or were, was there any news, but how well did he reassure? What struck me about this use of the bully pulpit is that when he got to the section of the speech that I think was meant to a reassure people that we have ways of keeping them safe and B tell them don't overreact and remember who we are as a people, be resilient, be good to your neighbors, embrace American values. That's why we're special. It almost seemed to me, it sounded almost as though he were hectoring his critics more than he was speaking to the public at large. And I think that's, it didn't go over well as a reassurance speech because of that tone. That's interesting. So it it smacked too much of politics in that sense. Like It's not necessarily. It's sort of like I'm I'm aiming this in a way at Donald Trump and people like Donald Trump is one way you could read it. Maybe. So I think you have to sort of think about who he's trying to reassure here because I actually did feel reassured by Hmm. the speech. I understand that it wasn't sort of. But you're um, rational. Right. As a rational actor. And you've killed terrorists. (laughs) We'll edit that that part out. We'll edit that part out. I prefer to rain death from on high, but whatever gets the job done. Um, but look, uh, the president's speech was reasonable. It was a reminder that grown-ups are still in charge yeah. here. So far. And that's what I needed to be reassured about. Now, this why sense did you need, of the why? world gone unhinged. Like, why did you need to, I mean, I mean, presumably, I mean, you know, you from first-hand experience know that grown-ups are in charge. But like, why did you feel that you needed to have a reassurance of that. Is it because of all the rhetoric that's flying around now? And, and, and from Congress, too. I mean, there's some... Right. I think it's been sort of this slow and not-so-slow creep towards, I mean, vaguely fascist mm-hmm. rhetoric, right? Yeah. So sort of starting with the refugees, each it's sort of each episode here, it's getting uglier and uglier. And, uh, you know, certainly from uh, the Republican field, you have really astounding things being said. Um, and then, and then you have from the Republican base nothing being said in response. 
Yeah. Um, you know, even the Democrats sort of are not coming out hard enough against against this kind of talk. And, um, you know, whenever you see the numbers like, you know, 76%, I think, was what was what Vox had cited to, of, of Americans that, like, are unsure about Muslims... That's it's a scary time, and, and I do feel like I, I had a need to to be reminded um, that serious people are in charge of this country, and this kind of cowboy nonsense that we're hearing is just it's just a bunch of theater. Yeah. So I think in some ways the most interesting aspect of that speech was the reaction to it. So I agree with you that the speech itself was underwhelming and bromide filled, and particularly given the build-up to it, where mm-hmm. there was some suggestion that the president was going to announce some major new policy initiative. He canceled and, his appearance at the Kennedy Center. Right. I mean, it, was, it, felt, was, it felt like the correspondence dinner weekend when bin Laden was killed. Yeah, exactly. It felt like something was building to something <laughs> big, and you had this big, big build-up to, you know, can't we all just get along? Right. Um, and... That said, the Republican reaction to it was astonishing. You know, the idea... Irrational, even. You might say irrational. The idea that 10 years ago, the president makes a major address on a national security issue, and the opposition party responds by mocking him, is unheard of. Yeah. You know, even in the run-up to the Iraq War where there are a lot of nasty things that were said about President Bush, certainly. The idea that there was a real problem there that we needed to think about, um, you know, there's, there's, there's something very peculiar about the degree to which just mocking the president as a, uh, as a figure of sort of derision and, um, and, anger and mirth kind of all wrapped into one. Um, well, you know, I, I didn't see mirth. I definitely saw derision, but it wasn't, it, it was, um, it was with fear mongering, not with mirth and humor, not laughing it off. And, and, you know, in that sense, I think that's precisely what the president was targeting. And that's why I say, I think his words in some ways were more targeted at his political critics than they were, at the American people writ large, um, you know, he was kind of wagging his finger and saying, how dare you play politics with our core American values? This isn't who we are, and scaremongering doesn't help anything, and in fact, it even helps the terrorists, so you should be ashamed of yourselves. And their response was to double down on it um, because it works. And... And I think when I, it seems to work politically for them. And, and when I look at this back and forth, I wish that, I would wish that the president had managed to rise above that ugly political fray a little more. Um, you know, and, and maybe that requires a little bit more empathy for the fear and the, and the anxiety along with the reassurance both on policy grounds and on sort of societal resilience grounds. Instead, I think what he did was say, let me tell you what we're already doing. We're already doing all this stuff, so get off my back. That was kind of how the policy section sounded to me. 
And then the values section was the was how dare you finger wagging. Right. So I I agree that he came off as defensive in a way that was not what you wanted in that situation. But I'm I I guess I'm I'm a little bit perplexed that in in this environment, it seems to be enough to say if you're Jeb Bush, who said this on the Sunday talk shows that same day, basically, you know, we need leadership that leads and strategy that strategizes, <laughs> and we don't we don't just want to have tactics that tactic. Um, and you know, <laughs> okay, well, good point. So all of my criticism that I just made was about tone. And substantively, let's, you know, let's all embrace the fact that this is a really hard problem. Yeah. Right. And the policy is a complicated policy that is unsatisfying because it's difficult and it's going to take a long time and the vi- victory, such as it is, is incomplete. So that does make it easy for Jeb Bush, but maybe it also means that I'm being a little too tough on Barack Obama. Right. I mean, I, I guess what, what, what bothers me here is, like, I, I can so- totally see... Um, where Lindsey Graham and John McCain are coming from, which is... They also want strategy that strategy. No, no, no. They propose something very specific. We need to build the following type of ground force involving the following countries, the following numbers, and we need to be able to put in X number of people in order to get that done. Now, they may be right or they may be wrong about what they're proposing, but at least they're proposing something. The, the vast majority of the Republican rhetoric is to accuse Obama of not doing enough and then suggesting that he do all the things that he's in fact already doing. And I think there's, you know, there's just something right. very strange about, you know, we're not doing enough to tackle uh, ISIS. We need to have a plan to, you know, to disrupt and destroy uh, and use, you know, air power and not, you know, some ground troops, but not too many. And, yes, and the president get, agrees. get a coalition <laughs> together to dis- defeat and destroy. Yeah. But I do think that returns to Tammy's point about this primarily being a question of tone. Look, to the extent that Obama is sort of trying to create uh, the difference between profiles and courage and clowns, mm-hmm. Um, one, he could have stepped up his own game. We've certainly seen that he's capable of really some, some moving kind yeah. of. And um, he was throwing some political pot shots in that, you know, in jabs in that speech, yeah. Right. And, and then it does make sense, it is rational for the, um, you know, for the Republicans to sort of respond to that effort by trying to, to minimize him and, and to make him seem sort of as sure. foolish and petty, you know, as they've been saying. So you're saying that he opened himself up to that? I'm saying that to the extent he was attempting to achieve uh, the tone or, or the rhetoric of, you know, uh, our nation's values, I don't think he hit that quite high enough. And I think that the Republicans were successful as a reality in terms of the numbers, were really successful in, in knocking him down. So I guess the question that we'll have to um, try to answer over the course of the next several days or weeks is whether Trump, in going so far overboard into truly loopy um, and hateful rhetoric, uh, banning all Muslims from entering the United States, has now generated in the Republican Party um, 
such a backlash that it gives Obama space to do what he couldn't do on Sunday night. Well, that's an excellent segue into our well, next wordplay. Thank play. you, Shane. It's I try to be good, it. good at segue. Then, uh, Ben, yes, you're going to take that up. Donald Trump and his keep out the Muslims. What does he call them? Yeah, well, keep, I know Muslims. They're great people, but kick them out. But kick them out. Whereas Bernie Sanders, who doesn't seem to have hostility for Muslims, doesn't also seem to know how to pronounce them and <laughs> And does seem to, you know, call them Muslims. At least he's not denouncing them. Um, at Are least he's not denouncing them. Muslims or Muslims? Uh, it's, it does seem like a Z to me, but, um, uh-huh. uh, you know, I, I think some of Bernie Sanders' press people need to work with him on the pronunciation of Muslim or Muslim or yeah. Muslim. You know, just got to work on that a little bit, Bernie. Yeah, you got nuclear, now work on Muslims. Right. Yeah. Um, Look, I mean, I'm sitting at my desk yesterday, and I uh, get this email from a woman named Mayal Sadani, who has occasionally written for Lawfare about Egyptian politics. Um, and it is this a very beautiful and quite impassioned kind of personal essay about what it's like to be an American Muslim over the past few weeks. Um, and I had just tweeted out, that it is a moving story about, you know, the experience of being an American Muslim, when my phone gives me an alert from the New York Times that Donald Trump has called for uh, barring Muslims. I think he actually said shutting down Muslims. It's like some totally inartful phrasing, like, Wow, yeah. and and he's now clarified. Shane's objection is that he wasn't eloquent enough. Yeah, <laughs> in right. Calling for You're right. That right. is the primary problem. But he clarified today. I think that even Muslim citizens, if they were outside the country, would not be allowed back right. under his proposal. So he's. It's not like he misspoke or something. No. Um, and I was thinking. So this comes a few days after. Uh, um, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. said, we all need to get guns so that we can, uh, you know, when these things happen, these things, we can, you know, take out the Muslims. Um, Didn't he say, end those Muslims? End those Muslims. I forget the, you know, the exact words are not what's important. But, but yeah, I mean, so we have one prominent person calling for us to end Muslims. The leading presidential candidate on the Republican side is calling for us to bar even Muslim U.S. citizens from the shores of the United States. So I have two reactions to this. One semi-serious, which was that I had a feeling that every day I should take a picture of a nice American Muslim and just tweet it with some appropriate, hey, you know, this is the person that, you know, Donald Trump wants to keep out of the country. Um, but I thought that might be a little bit patronizing. But the more serious point that I was thinking about was when was the last time a presidential candidate has run on an explicitly racial call? I mean, it's not like a, you know, a sort of uh, couched yeah. rhetoric. It's right, not no a, dog whistle here. It's not no. a dog whistle. No. It's, um, it's I mean, not... even David Duke probably doesn't yes. qualify. George uh, Wallace, maybe? Well, so George Wallace, yeah. um, in, yeah, George Wallace definitely qualifies. But, I mean, I think... Did Father Coughlin run for president? He did not. He was just a radio talk show host. Um, 
I mean, you have to go back a long way before people were making open appeals to race, ethnicity, religion. Yeah. Um, and this and, is not a fringe candidate. And it's right. It's not like, you know, Lyndon B. LaRouche. He's still, I looked at the real clear average, politics averages today. It's He's still significantly above everyone else, except maybe in Iowa. Um, and so, you know, as somebody who's always wondered, you know, who's always said, hey, the average American voter is not interested in explicit appeals, you know. That, and that like might still be true, way. but the, the, um, the average Republican primary voter seems to be. Well, and it's no mistake, I think, that, well, he came out with this statement after a poll showing Ted Cruz was surging in Iowa. I mean, this is, you know, this so is So you think it's cynical <clears throat> and calculated? I think it's cynical and calculated, but, but I also, I mean, picking up on what you guys were talking about before, too, it's... It is, it is those things, I think, or at least we should suspect it might be, because I think that everything Donald Trump does is clearly pretty cynical and calculated. Um, but there were no dog whistles. It was not implied. It was not couched. There is a spectrum of rhetoric and talk within which, frankly, many of the Republican candidates are operating. Right. Where you like can suggest Right. You can say, well, I mean, Muslims might be a problem. Not all Muslims, but some Muslims. And we all know what they're doing. But they don't come out and say, all Muslims should be kicked out of the country. It is he, Whatever the threshold of tolerable rhetoric in this campaign, and probably many others, is, he crossed it. Right. He went over it. He is now clearly well, in that line. but maybe it's just a difference of degree, not of kind. I mean, based on well, what you're saying, sure, but the I difference of degree could be significant. Okay, so I want to pose two questions. One was posed on Lawfare today by John Bellinger. John Bellinger, who was the State Department legal advisor and NSC legal advisor in the Bush administration, not exactly a shrinking violet from the point of view of... Uh, national security, has a piece arguing that Donald Trump is a national security threat. Mm -hmm. And the basic problem from his point of view is that... um, This is helping ISIS recruit. That's the argument? Well, there's a recruitment side of it, but there's also, you know, a um, a, a, just a danger to a great danger associated with linking that kind of hatred with, with... the power of the presidency, and that's a serious problem. So then Rob House, who's an NYU law professor and a very bright guy, tweeted a a different security issue related to Trump's rhetoric, which is, did he think about the safety and security of the residents and employees of all the buildings in the world that bear the name Trump? Um, oh, that's a great question. And I think that is a profound question um, that, you know, listeners of this podcast should, like, bear a moment to reflect on. If 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 the name Wittis were on 50 buildings around the world and 50 celebrity kind of buildings... And we anticipate it will. And we anticipate it will. Thank you, Susan. I think I would have to be very careful... Yeah. more careful than I normally am about not making people hate me. And I wonder whether Trump, the the building, you know, Trump buildings are going to be sort of the new World Trade Center, just kind of a symbol of what you want to attack if you're a bad guy. Well, God forbid. But, you know, the interesting thing is that when Trump launched his candidacy, the positive argument he made on behalf of his election is that 
was exactly rooted in his personal brand, that he was a symbol of success, of greatness, of achievement, and that if you vote for him, you can have that too, in essence, that he will bestow upon America the success and achievement uh, and recognition that the Trump brand symbolizes. So in a sense, he might even be sullying his own, the, the rationale for his own campaign. I mean, I can't imagine why any American Muslim would want to do business with something with a with the name Trump, or for that matter, why any decent-minded non-Muslim. I mean, there's just there's just something so repellent about the rhetoric. But I think there's an there's an obvious answer to the question of did he consider the safety? No, he right. didn't consider the safety, right. or but, doesn't think it's a real threat if he did. But 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 I think. I think the more important point is that I really don't believe that he did. One, yeah. because he's so incredibly self-serving that I think that that actually might have given him pause. And two, it just demonstrates that this is this is not the kind of thoughtful individual who thinks through the consequences of his actions. And as much as, you know, uh, other people sort of speak in codes or maybe this is just an incremental step, look... There is a point at which we can't go back from this. Mm-hmm. If if Trump says, you know, less than 24 hours ago, we should ban all Muslims from the United States, and like, I don't know, within the next 24 hours remains a viable candidate, that means that that's something that can be said in this country without it being political suicide. And, right, and, that's and a, I don't think we can come great, back. That's a great point. And so the question then becomes, I mean, like, do the poll numbers go up or down? Well, and even if they don't go up, if he is not drummed out of the race in some manner, as Susan's saying, it's a condemnation of America, yes, not just a condemnation of Trump. And that's, you know, I I think that's a depressingly open question, Susan, and I think you're right to ask it. Look, and speaking of depressing, like, Trump's comments really have, for some reason, this last round of comments I've found to sort of be the most egregiously Fall. I'm yeah. not quite sure why. Considering all well, the they, they, they objectively things he said. are, they objectively are. Well, unless you happen to be Mexican. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, but no, he wasn't also calling for like kicking out Mexican Americans. No, but he was calling just the rapist one. Yeah, right. He, okay. he, so he, was he, pretty damn close he, to where he, he began. He was. Yeah, he did start by saying which is what started that this Mexico whole exported their rapists to us. Right, but but let's also remember, like there are a lot of Republican politicians in office in this country who, over the last several weeks, have said things like, you know. I'm not against all Muslims, but Sharia law is a threat to the United States. Yeah. You know, which if you're a Muslim, that's there's not a hell of a lot of difference between those two yeah. things. And so that's why I say the fact that this is really a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. It yes, you're right, Susan, it should shock us into a certain kind of reaction that then pushes all of this off the table, but that threshold that you've been talking about was crossed already. Right. So here- right, but so, something about this, I think, has has crossed a threshold for me personally as somebody who has served in the intelligence community, who thinks about national security policy issues as a profession, to say, at what point do I have an obligation to reconsider my worldview, which is one that is supportive of robust national security authorities, that tremendously believes in the rule of law? You know, I have 
a lot of faith in the civil servants who carry out the mission the intelligence community, the military. Like, I am your, your pro-national security person. At what point do I have to look at myself and say, I know what these tools look like. What if Donald Trump wins yeah, and, and gets to them. wield them? Right. Or Le Pen in France or these other, like, in the hands of genuinely malevolent actors. Yeah. And I have to be, be honest here. I've never really considered the notion that that kind of person could be president of the United States. Not, not in my heart of hearts. I have not considered that notion. Mm-hmm. And do you still think, I mean, do you worry that he very well could become president? Or do you think that this threshold that, you know, you say he crossed, and I think he crossed too, has doomed him? And that this is, this is the beginning of the end? I think at some point, if you refuse to consider the numbers... Then you're not. Like, you're in denial, yeah. right? That's like, what I thought. Of course, yeah. there's a possibility he's going to be president. You know, it's the end of December practically, or early December. Like, and yet, and yet, first of all, no one's voted yet, and they won't vote for another almost two months. And so, it, this candidacy and all, a bunch of other candidacies could collapse very quickly once people actually start voting. The other thing is, you know. That that thing about the rule of law, no matter who's president, they are constrained by a constitution, <laughs> right? Yeah, he and could not do the things he's proposing to do. He could, right. And so even if Donald Trump were, God forbid, to become president, he wouldn't be able to do those things. He would, and, and to what extent can we take comfort from that. I'm not saying that, you know, therefore we should be calm about the existence of such horrific and hateful rhetoric in our political system or its apparent appeal. Um, but how confident are we in the structures and institutions that sustain our democracy even despite that? I, I just want to say one last thing on the question of, and then we'll move on to the last wordplay, but you, Tammy, you raised the question of like when. How do we ca- do we do we cast him out? You know, right? and, yeah. and what would that look like? I mean, would that look like the RNC, you know, coming out with a statement? Would that you know, would look like? I think tarring and feathering. Right, tarring and feathering. Yeah, yeah, but one thing I will say, and I like this from a, just from a, put my journalist hat on for a second, because I do think that many people in my profession bear direct responsibility for keeping this Trump narrative alive, because he is just good copy and good press, and that's all. That's a whole other discussion, but. No, no, and and no surprise that the morning after he comes out with this, he is on four, count them, four broadcast channels. He is is the outrage machine, and we we love it, and it works for us. But what he did do in these comments, I think, is gave journalists across America an objective reason to no longer take him seriously, and to not seem biased in doing it, to not seem politically motivated, but just to simply say... This man cannot be taken seriously as a candidate for president proposing these things. I, and that could make a big difference. I hope that editors can hold on to that in the face of ratings pressures telling them the opposite. I, I'm with you there, 100%. <laughs> Speaking as a journalist, <laughs> site to rise a lot of traffic from Donald Trump. Okay. Uh, Tamara, let's go on. Tamara. I said to say Tammy and then Tamara. 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 Thank you. I'll answer to just about anything from you, Shane. Tam, Tamster. <laughs> no, that's too far. All right. A step Line, too far. Line is crossed. 
<laughs> yes, I too crossed the threshold. Ooh. All right. So if we weren't depressed enough, I wanted to bring to you the sobering text of Secretary of State Kerry's address to the Saban Forum this weekend. Full disclosure, the Saban Forum is a U.S.-Israel dialogue sponsored and run by yours truly at the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. Should I read it in my John Kerry voice? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Maybe that would cheer us up. But, um, I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> you know, this is John Kerry, the dealmaker, the eternal optimist, the man who, even after everyone else in the U.S. government had given up on Arab-Israeli peace, wanted to give it one more try. And he came to this Vaughn Forum to say, we're done. <laughs> we're done. And, you know, it, it was a little bit shocking. I didn't actually think he was going to do it. But wow. it was, uh, and it wasn't, if, if those of you who may remember James Baker's famous line back in 1991, I believe it was, uh, when he announced that the George H.W. Bush administration was done, he said uh, to Israelis and Palestinians, here's the number of the White House switchboard. When you're ready, call us. Kerry, of course, couldn't be quite so blunt. Uh, he was not only more diplomatic, but he also left the door a little bit more open. And that raises the question of whether Israelis and Palestinians will even get the message that in these Kerry-esque tones said we're done. What he said was, here is what I know. The Israeli and Palestinian people deserve better, but the current path is not leading to a more peaceful future. I am concerned that unless significant efforts are made to change the dynamic, and I mean significant, it will only bring more violence, more heartbreak, and more despair. That's a fear, not a threat. And then he went on to lay out at great length fundamental questions that Palestinians have to ask themselves, like, do we think that these symbolic gestures or boycotts of Israel are going to bring us a state? You know, um, are we really doing everything we can to avoid violence? And then questions Israelis have to ask themselves. He said things that, it, you know, I haven't heard from Israeli officials before, like the prime minister has been clear that he doesn't want a binational state, but many current Israeli ministers don't believe in two states. Um, and so it was from Kerry, particularly from Kerry, a very dark speech. So two questions here. Number one is, do Israelis and Palestinians have any reason to believe an American administration, and maybe particularly John Kerry, when they say, we're done? The, um, you know, this is back in your laps. Whatever happens is up to you. Or are they going to work on the assumption that no matter what, the Americans will dive back in to save us from ourselves? And number two, um, if this administration, at least, uh, is really and truly done trying to make Arab-Israeli peace or manage the Arab-Israeli conflict for the next 13 months, what's likely to happen? I guess my, my, my mind goes to, to the question of, you know, should they, I guess, take it seriously? I would say yes, because I feel like we sort of heard a little bit of this right after the peace talks collapsed, I guess it was two summers ago, and I remember hearing Martin and Dick being interviewed by Jeffrey Goldberg at, in Aspen, and it was it was kind of like this. It was like a it was like a eulogy, and and he was was very blunt about saying like you've got two parties to the peace process who fundamentally don't trust each other, and unless that's changed, this ain't going anywhere. 
And it was really kind of laying it out like, look, these are the facts, kids. I mean, if it's kind of, you know, he didn't say it's done, and he wasn't maybe as And he wasn't as a sitting official any and longer he wasn't. when he, he said that. He was a private that. citizen when he said it's exactly right, and it was a key difference, but he had just left. I mean, he was kind of literally like still, you know, fresh mm-hmm. from, from government. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, I mean, and, and, and I know Kerry has sort of been chasing this white whale of, you know, the peace process for a long time, but... You know, the writing's That's a been... new horror movie with Chris Hemsworth, right? Oh, it's going to be so good, yeah. too. Yeah, it's not doing well on pre-shows, though. Um, that's true. That's another story. That's another podcast. But the point being is, like, I feel like the writing has kind of been on the wall here. And, like, part of me wonders, like, you know, if it wants to say to Secretary Kerry, like, yes, thank you for recognizing what has been clearly the reality in the world and in your administration. But actually, I do. I think there's value to to like real talk, right? Yeah. This is Kerry standing up. His rational security. He's man. untethering himself from the bonds of diplomacy and saying enough. And maybe whenever the facts on the ground are that you do have two parties that don't trust each other, that don't really have any modes of communication, that aren't actually moving towards a solution, maybe what needs to happen is something different than what has been happening. And so if Carrie is saying, uh, this isn't working and we're done with it, maybe that is sort of heralds a new, uh, at least the potential for a different path forward. So there, I think there's been this hypothesis for a long time among some American observers of the peace process that the U.S. cares a little too much and you have to let Israelis and Palestinians stare into the abyss without the United States holding their hand sure. before they'll really take seriously the danger ahead of them and do something to avert it. But I don't know, Ben, do you think that's what's going to happen? So I think, you know, there's a subtext in a bunch of things that you've said that Kerry was, um, you know, white whaling, obsessively overcommitted to something that was improbable um, always. And I think just as he overestimated in a massive way after Condi Rice couldn't get this done, after Hillary Clinton couldn't get this done, after, you know, like lots of secretaries of state have invested a lot in it and it's gone nowhere. And then Kerry comes along and says, well, there needs to be a push kind of because I haven't tried it yet. And just as that was always a sort of self-important delusional um, uh, sense of his own role, I think the idea that he now says, I'm done, will have a major impact, is also a overestimation of his own importance in, mm. the, in the process. Well, and he, the, the, the fact of the matter is, the peace process wasn't going anywhere while he was working on it, and it's not going anywhere now that he's not working on it, and it won't go anywhere until the basic calculation of one or both sides change. And the basic calculation right now, and nobody likes to say this, but I think it's true, is that the conflict isn't costly enough. The The costs of resolving the conflict exceed the costs of perpetuating the conflict for both sides. And until that's not true for one side or the other or both, the conflict will perpetuate irrespective of who the Secretary of State is or how committed he is to getting uh, people to change their minds. So I agree with you on the first part, Ben, and I'm not sure I agree with you on the second part. I would agree with you that 
American secretaries of state carry among them have tended to overestimate the, the ability of the United States to kind of leverage this process toward a conclusion when the parties themselves have serious doubts and those doubts have only magnified. But I'm not sure that the, that the official announced withdrawal of the United States from the peace process has zero effect on the party's calculations. Because as long as the U.S. is still in there, you know, Kerry just was there two weeks ago trying to do crisis management in the middle of the current wave of violence, stabbings, and so on. And as long as the United States is continuing to kind of send envoys out on crisis management and, you know, make exhortations, the two parties have something to respond to that is not one another and is not their own public's. They can respond to the United States. They can use American visits as a way of reiterating their own talking points. But without the U.S. kind of stepping in the middle of it, they have to confront merely, simply, the reality in which they're living. And I, I hold out the possibility that it might have some impact. Although I think that that also, you know, it doesn't just just force them to have a conversation sort of to sort of confront um, one another. It it also removes removes the safety net of a particular type of rhetoric. So uh, if Netanyahu doesn't actually believe that the United States will permit the collapse of the Palestinian Authority, and he and he knows that we won't let that happen. That gives him a safe space to say all kinds of things and, and gain all kinds of political points, even though deep down, if he was actually forced to confront that as a possibility, it, one would hope at least that he wouldn't have the stomach for, for what the consequences would be. So you think that it, that Kerry's announcement of American withdrawal from the process might induce more responsible behavior by the leaders? I would hope. Let's hope. Okay, hope springs eternal. Yes, it does. Let's move on to object lessons. Ben, you look very eager to share your object. You know, at this time when um, the war seems everlasting and we don't have, you know, hope for a, for a, a good resolution in the immediate future, I always come back to that great Onion cartoon, or not cartoon, but article, that hangs on my, the door of my office. It has a picture of a cat dressed in a uh, military uniform, and it has the headline, War on String May Be Unwinnable, says Cat General. This is and, our future. Yes, and I, I think every time the, you know, we, we are staring <laughs> into the abyss, there, staring into the abyss of, of, of the never, the, of the forever war, mm. I think of poor General Bonkers, as, <laughs> as he's named in this cartoon, um, who, uh, has a very serious look on his face and is contemplating the never ending quality of the war on string. It's a wise cat. Yeah, the is. Onion is a very wise newspaper. It truly is. It is a font of wisdom. Maybe not, perhaps not of news, but of wisdom. Yeah. All right. Well, I I would like to share with all of you um, this lovely photograph. This is not me. 
As you can see, no. this is Christopher Lambert. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, a mediocre Belgian actor. I believe he's Belgian. <laughs> he aspires to mediocre. <laughs> to mediocre, mediocre Belgian yeah, status. But, what's, but he's what, awfully handsome. The reason I'm showing this to you is not because of him. It's because of what he's holding in his hand. Can you see? It looks like a, a, a lightsaber. <laughs> it is a large sword. A, a large sword. Swords. It is a large broadsword, in fact. And it's... And this is Christopher Lambert, of course, playing the lead role in Highlander. Yeah. A movie um, that also aspired to be That is being um, wonderfully tolerant of me because I've been obsessed with this movie for far too many years. And, uh, and, uh, and obsessed too with sword fighting. And so my, my dear husband, to indulge me, bought me my very own Scottish broadsword. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) It is about three feet long. It is sharp and heavy. So heavy that I'm not actually sure I can wield it in any meaningful manner. And so for right now, I'm going to keep it in my office to intimidate my staff into compliance. But I'm hopeful that maybe next year, darling, you can get me sword fighting lessons. Ooh. Will do. Yeah. <laughs> Put that on the list. <laughs> like the war against string, you will just you, you can't win against the broadsword. You cannot win against Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. Oof. There can be only one. Oof. Wasn't it that movie? Didn't that not very good movie also become though a TV show that now is pretty well regarded? Uh, it was a not very good TV show, but uh, yeah, I watched it obsessively throughout graduate school, as Ben will tell you. Wow. You derived into See, the amazing thing that's like Obama's speech, the, you know, the amazing thing about, uh, or like the Republican rhetoric, the amazing thing is not that this is true, but that, that she'll say it. She'll say it. <laughs> you crossed that threshold a long time I ago. I did. Tammy Wittes will not be shamed no. by you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, okay, so my object actually stems from a, uh, a trip that I took uh, last week. <clears throat> I was invited to come up and speak to... Uh, at West Point, or the U.S. Military Academy, USMA, or USMA. Wow. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Muslim, USMA? USMA. Muslim. USMA. Uh, anyway, up to West Point to speak to a class of cadets who are taking a course in um, cyber ethics and cybersecurity. Um, actually, all cadets have to take some sort of basic computer security and computer information, you know, computer engineering course when they get there, but cyber is being, you know, more integrated fully into, um, the curriculum. So that was super cool. I'd never been to West Point before. But my object is actually this little fun that we got, we got a tour from one of the, uh, uh, the deputy director of the Cyber Institute, the Army Cyber Institute up there, who took us into the, the area, the superintendent's kind of building, which is like the president of the college. We got to go see these really just interesting rooms where you're not really allowed to go. And there's one where they have all these portraits from people who've won the Thayer Award, which is like this big award West Point gives. And so I just actually snapped a picture of Walter Cronkite, who's next to Colin Powell. But Walter was a friend of a good friend of mine, Carol Joint. So I took this picture and sent it to her. She was totally unimpressed. She was like, of course. I'm like, well, sorry, that was news to you. (laughs) That's an oil painting? It's an oil painting. And there's these oil paintings like all over the the whole room. So this room, you can't tell, but it's like, it's like, it's like a little chapel. It's cavernous. And 
Like, it's like, it looks like a medieval chapel. I mean, it's big and the high ceilings. With the walls lined with oil With these oil torches. So you've got, like, uh, um, Colin Powell, you've got Neil Armstrong, Bob Hope, Walter Cronkite. I mean, it's awesome. sort of people who've made great contributions to America. You'll be on that wall one day, Shane. Oh, sure. Right next to Walter Cronkite. Mm-hmm. There's, just, there's space, as you can see. That's right. Journalists. That's right. Shane. Sure there is. Um, but anyway, it was great, and if anyone from West Point's listening, um, would love to come back. It was really cool, actually, to be up there. Not that he's soliciting an invitation. No, no, they've invited me to come back, of course. They, you know, they're all about it. Um, but no, it was great. It was really good, and it's, um, yeah, a bright future up there. It was really affirmed my spirit in America. Those are the people we're training to keep out Muslims. That's true. And, and to win the war on strings. Yeah, and boy, howdy, are they ready for it, too. I'll lend them my brats. They look a little tired at class, I'll be honest with you. They've <laughs> been having a late night. But okay, that's all right. Um, so that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to other show pages and archives of our episodes at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us at R-A-T-L Security on Twitter. We're not on Instagram. No, yeah. that's because we're an audio show. It's an audio show. Well, we have objects. We could be on SoundCloud. Sure we could. We're on SoundCloud. We're, on, we're up there someplace. No, we're not. On no, we're not. We're just no. kidding. We are in the cloud. Don't waste your time looking for us on SoundCloud. You will find nothing. You can find a Lawfare podcast on SoundCloud. Oh. On, or some Lawfare stuff. On you haven't log rolled in a while, so thank yes. you. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you download the podcast from wherever, not SoundCloud or wherever you might find Lawfare, please leave us a five-star rating. We would love that. And comments for us as well. Um, the podcast is edited, as always, by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the musical Muslims. I think it would have to be Bernie Sanders and the Muslims. Oh, but Bernie Sanders means well. <laughs> like, hey, fine, Bernie Sanders and the musical Muslims. Donald Trump has his own band, Crazy. That's you know, right. He's so, a one-man band. Just hopefully playing his exit as we speak. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and our special guest, Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.